Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. We've looked at one verse in Psalm 103 about a month ago when we were discussing the sovereignty of God, and now I want to do so in the psalm's entirety. Psalm 103. I've said the line before, I think when we begin this series in the psalms, the well-known line by A.W. Tozer, who says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. You are, bottom line, the sum of your thoughts about God. You want to know what a person is like? It's what they think of God and believe to be true about God. And truly, if you can think of God and possess a small regard for the love of God, then that means that the most important thing in your life, namely your view of God, is tainted. And if your view of God is tainted, then your life itself will be flawed. Truly, as we come today to study and observe the love of God, we must first remember that we love because he first, what? Loved us. Do you want to grow in your love for God this morning? Well, then the reality is if you want to grow in your love for God, you must fundamentally grow in your understanding of God's love for you. Because you cannot offer to God that which he has not first extended. You are the moon that reflects the sun. Our love for God is a direct byproduct of our depths and our commitment to knowing his love in the scripture. There are 42 kings of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament. Only one of them is described as a man after God's own heart. That man's name is David. And to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, you must begin to fathom what the heart of God is like. You can't be a man or woman after God's own heart and be a stranger to his heart. You must know who he is. And so for that very reason, we come to Psalm 103 this morning. I want to read the first two verses that help us as we begin to observe the love of God this morning. David says, bless the Lord, or Yahweh, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. The first thing David is going to do is he is going to encourage, compel, motivate, and exhort himself to bless the Lord. You need to understand that worship involves feeling, but it is not fundamentally a function of your feelings. It is a choice of the will. David, when he does not feel like worshiping, preaches the truth to himself in order that he might give God the praise that he deserves. Like a dog that shakes off the flies, David is trying to shake off every single ounce of indifference and apathy as he approaches the worship of God. He doesn't want to offer God superficial worship. This is possible, right? It says in Matthew 15 that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Very possible for you to go, praise the Father, praise the Son, without our hearts being tuned to offer God the worship he deserves with all of our soul, with all of our being. You're not prepared to worship God by entering the glass doors on my left. We sing prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And the reality is we need our hearts to be tuned and so David knows this, he acknowledges this, and the first thing he does is he looks himself in the mirror and he pumps himself up. He necessarily 
just ramps and, and, and gets excited about the prospect of worshiping God. And so he rekindles emotion and feeling in the truth. Worship of God is cerebral, meaning it involves your mind, right? We, Jesus teaches us that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, what? Mind and strength. Worship is not blind emotion. It involves our mind. But David understands that worship is cerebral, but it's not stoic. It involves our affections and our emotions. The thing that's happened in our culture is we pursue the emotions and the affections of worship without the truth that necessarily functions as the fountainhead for it. And so we've put the cart before the horse, but David knows there is a necessary amount of emotion in worship. And so he throws the fuel of great truths about God in the furnace of his mind. And the predominant theme in Psalm 103 is on God's loving kindness, his love. Perhaps there is no word in all of the English language that has been more starved of meaning than the word love. I love pasta. I love God. And so when we come to this study of God's love, we need to understand that it's unlike any other type of love. We need to remove ourselves from even our human language to begin to fathom what it means when we say God loves you and God loves his children. I started this week by saying maybe I'll highlight three things about the love of God and then I think on Wednesday it was five things and then it was seven and now it's 10. So buckle in, we'll dismiss at three. Uh, no, it, um, 10 features of the love of God this morning. I'm gonna go quick, but the first one is where I'll spend the most time. 10 features, 10 characteristics of the love of God. You see the first feature by a qualifier that David gives in verse one. David says, all that is within me, bless his, what? Holy name. God's love, first and fundamentally, is a holy love. As we consider the love of God, remember, we can never separate the love of God from the holiness of God. God's attributes are not pieces of a pie that is God. We've talked about this. He's not 20% just 20% holy, 10% sovereign, and 90% love. That's 140%, I know, get the picture. But God is all of his attributes all of the time in full measure, meaning we can't ever divorce one attribute from the other. God's love is a sovereign love. God's love is a just love. God's love is also a holy love. Sadly, you can grow up singing holy, holy, holy and never share the response that Isaiah has to the words that proclaim that very same reality. But God is a holy God. And before David ever begins to reflect on God's love, he first wants you to remember that there is a chief cornerstone to the character of God, and that is his holiness, his otherness, that he is nothing like you. When we want to emphasize something, we highlight it, we circle it, we underline it. But in the Bible, when God wants to emphasize and drive home a truth, he repeats it. And there's only one attribute of God highlighted to the superlative degree, and that's God's holiness. It's not just that God is holy. It's not just that he's holy, holy. It's holy, holy, holy. The question is asked in Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like the Lord, majestic in holiness? What's the answer, church? No one. No one is like God. 
God never points outside of himself to define himself because there is nothing and there is no one like him. He is holy. What that means when we say that God is holy, it's not just that he is pure, even though it's part of that, it's that he is totally other. God's holiness is not a quantitative difference, meaning he's not the bigger and better version of you. It's a qualitative difference, meaning he's a totally different category all of altogether. It refers to his transcendence. It refers to his otherness. And those who behold God's holiness do not yawn. People wear shirts that say, Jesus is my homeboy. And to a sense, I understand, Jesus is a friend of sinners, amen? God is the father of his children. But God is also a holy, exalted king. And no one waltzes into the throne room of heaven and goes, sup. No one fist bumps God. And so when we understand his love, we start here. We enter his presence flippantly, but not boldly, or not boldly, or boldly, but not flippantly. Took me three times, but you know. On a quest to elevate the love of God, many in our culture have practically denied the truth of his holiness. And in doing so, they understand neither. Because when we speak so highly of the love of God without regarding his holiness, the love of God that we understand is mere sentimentality. It's just emotion. But God's love for us, if you want to have a deep understanding of it, always is built upon the foundation of understanding what David says here. Bless his holy name. Perhaps the people that have the most difficult time understanding the love of God are those that have grown up singing about it. We sing amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And yet that truth has never been poured into an individual's heart if they have not yet first understood the holiness of God in their mind. We've touched on this before, but we in our culture say things like God hates the sin but not the sinner. But even in our study of the Psalms, there are 14 times in the first 50 Psalms where the Psalms say God hates sinners. Understanding the holiness of God is so important for us to understand all of his other attributes. God abhors sins, abhors sin. It's an assault to his holiness. And you will never understand the love of God until you understand what he hates. And God hates sin. We need a right view of God's holiness this morning because the greater the love is the, the great love of God is based on our understanding of the greatness of his character. And when we see the greatness of God's character, the more accurate version we'll have an understanding of ourself. And then the lesser the object of love, the greater the love becomes. And then the greater the demonstration of love, the more marvelous it becomes in our own mind. As we are reminded of God's holiness, we are reminded of our unworthiness, which then further accelerates our gratitude for who God is. Fundamentally, you need to understand when we speak about God's holiness, there was nothing in yourself that caught the eye of God. There was nothing in you that wooed God. Sometimes I used to watch these videos of NBA scouts and like they're looking for the next Dirk Nowitzki, German basketball player. What do they see the potential? The 16-year-old kid is gonna grow up and he's gonna dominate. And we go, well, in baseball, there's five tool players. That guy can hit, he can catch, he can run, he can steal. He's got everything. And I think when we look at even God's love being demonstrated to us, we go, man, there must be something in me that drew the heart of God. But there was not a single thing in you that caused God to love you because he's holy 
which means that everything about you before you were in Christ was totally and completely an offense to him. People forget that we are not born children of God, but Ephesians 2 says children of wrath. You are not born friends of God, but Romans 5 says enemies of God. You are not born citizens of heaven. You were born, Colossians 1, citizens of the domain of darkness. The first feature of God's love makes the second feature all the more amazing. So number one, God's love is a holy love. But secondly, God's love is a forgiving love. Look with me at verses 3, 4, and 12. It says, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. David says, forget none of his benefits in verse two. And then he goes on to recount the greatest benefit that God could ever give to his own children. How many of our sins are forgiven by God? What's the answer? It says, who pardons how many of our iniquities? All. Satan wins if you think God has forgiven you of 99.9% of your sin. God has forgiven you of all of your sins if you're in Christ. And not only does he forgive them, he removes them. How far? As far as the east is from the west, verse 12 says. How far is the east from the west? You're going, well, I can get on a plane right now and I can be in London in, I don't know, 10 hours. How far the east is from the west? That's essentially God asking you the question, can you look at the sunrise and the sunset at the same time? No. God has removed your sin shot it into infinity that way and is only looking this way. He has put an infinite distance between you and your sins. God cannot, God can, cannot even think through this, you know, even we, we forgive in ways and then we bring it back up, right? We go, well, yeah, I thought you forgive me of that sin. Well, I did, but it's still, it's still there and there's a theme developing here or whatever we say. But God removes our sins and puts an infinite distance between them. He's plunged our sins into the deepest corners of the deepest ocean. Then it says he's healed all of our diseases. And maybe you think, well, what about cancer? What about the diseases that ravage our world? The psalmist here is talking about the greatest disease you could ever be afflicted with, and it's one that you are all born with. It's the disease of sin. And God has healed us and rescued us and pardoned us of all of our iniquities. The verse that is so often repeated in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is in Exodus. And James Montgomery Boyce used to say that this verse could be the answer to the question, what is God? God responds to Moses in Exodus by saying, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. In Exodus, Moses begs God to show him his glory. And you know what God does? He mounts the pulpit and he preaches a sermon on his character. And the most marvelous shining element of God's character is that he is a bounding suitcase, can't shut type of love. And he forgives iniquity and sin. Is this not a reason alone to bless the Lord? 
David says in Psalm 32, how blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. And that same blessed man in Psalm 32 is going to say in Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. Why? Because as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. The greatest need you have in life is to have your sins forgiven. You need God to cleanse you of your sin. You need him to give you his righteousness because without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. This is the greatest need you have. And if this need has been met by what Jesus Christ has done in his death and resurrection, then you of all people have reason to bless the Lord. So God's love is a holy love. It is a forgiving love. Third here in verse five, it's a satisfying love. Look with me at verse five. Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. God's love is a satisfying love. David says, it's like our youth is being renewed like the eagles. What is David speaking about? What's the most satisfying reality of David's heart? Well, he's not speaking here of perpetual youthfulness. He's talking about a superior pleasure, a superior satisfaction that is given to him in the love of God. I want you to flip back to Psalm 63. Wayne read from this passage last Sunday, Psalm 63. David says, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. David, first of all, goes, I'm in the driest, darkest season of my life. Maybe that's you. I am in a place where there is no water for my soul. My soul is parched. Verse three, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Flip back with me. My friend Harry always says that this marrow and fatness is like David saying that your love to me is better than steak and lobster. This is, this is Turkish delight for the soul. This love is so real and so satisfying that David says your loving kindness is better than life. And then here in verse five, it says, who satisfies your years with good things. John Piper says, and I like this, every true Christian knows the love of God, not just as an argument, but as an experience. The most satisfying thing to the king who ruled all things, that being David, had whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, was the love of God. Can I just ask you to be honest? Have you ever been thrilled by the love of God? David says, it's better than life. When my soul is dark and dry and weary, this is where I run. John 3.16 is probably 
the words that are, are the words that are most well known in language, period. For God so loved the world, right? And we sometimes look at that and we understand God's love on a macro level. Yeah, God loves the world. But you need to understand, in order for you to be satisfied by the love of God, you must experience it personally. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who what? Loved me and who gave himself for me. The love of God is a personal reality. Jonathan Edwards talks about this. We looked at this a few months ago. He says, it is possible to affirm that honey is sweet without ever tasting honey. And it's possible to affirm God is love without ever experiencing and tasting that love for yourself. You know, I grew up, I, I remember, I'm one of seven kids. I remember people coming up to my parents and being like, how do you love them all? You know, like, or do you, do you have a favorite? And I'm like, right there. I'm like, hey, bro, Mr. you know, Mr. Jones, you're a jerk. You know, um, and we understand that, you know. But God's love is not divided amongst the infinite amount of children that he has. God has an infinite amount of love to each and every single one of his children. That's why Augustine says he loves each one of us as if there were only one of us. Meaning that on the cross, Jesus was not just dying for the world. He was dying for you. On the cross, understand this, or you miss the love of God. Jesus had you in mind when he was there. Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to the praise of the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ. He knew whom he was dying for at Calvary. And you were in the mind of God when he was saying, Father, forgive them. He wasn't just dying for everyone. He was dying for you. And so this love is something that is experientially real. We've talked about this briefly before, but in Romans 5, one of the chief functions of the Spirit of God is to pour out the love of God into your hearts so that when I say God loves you, you say, I know. I know. Maybe you've confessed the love of God with your lips, but you're lapsing and wanting and that experience of it in your heart, then you can pray with Moses in Psalm 90, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness so that we may be glad all of our days. Psalm 90, Moses is coming to the end of his life, and here's his prayer. I mean, it's amazing. And here's your prayer. Do you want the things of the world to grow strangely dim? Well, then you need to find superior satisfaction And so Moses, the mediator between God and his people, says, God, please satisfy, thrill my heart with your loving kindness today. It's not a theological subject you, it's a reality you experience. Number four, God's love is a loyal love. I want you to look with me at verses 8, 11, and 17, and we're going to just find a theme here. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. Verse 17, but the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. 
Perhaps no word carries with it more significance in the Old Testament than the Hebrew word hesed, which is translated loving kindness in my Bible. Maybe in your Bible it says steadfast love. God's loving kindness is unlike all other types of love. It refers to God's faithful, patient, enduring, steadfast love. It is a love that will not let you go. We read this morning in Romans 8, what Paul says, what can separate us from the love of God? Well, tribulation, will distress, or famine, will nakedness, or the sword, or peril. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, for I am convinced that neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. You know why? Because God is abounding in a strong, enduring, loyal love. In the book of Hosea, there's a vivid picture of this. God tells Hosea the prophet, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that prostitute and I want you to marry her. And she's gonna cheat on you over and over and over again. And I want you then at that point to just begin to remotely understand how unfaithful my people are to me and how faithful I am to them because I'm abounding in loving kindness. In the year 587, Jeremiah, who is known as the weeping prophet, writes the short book of Lamentations. In it, he laments the destruction of Jerusalem. The people are devastated, they're heartbroken, and amidst the chaos and the confusion and the agony, Jeremiah writes some of the sweetest words in all of scripture. Lamentations 319, remember my affliction and my wondering, the wormwood and bitterness. Wormwood is just extremely bitter meaning that Jeremiah sums up his whole life as difficulty and pain. And then he says this, Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never, what? Ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your, talk to me, faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. If you had to summarize the book of Lamentations, it would be, I think fairly simply, life is hard. God is love. Pain is real. And so is God's love. This world will come to an end. God's love will not. Because it is a patient, steadfast, enduring love. And you know what? This is why Jesus says in John 10, 28, that I will die for my sheep and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. You know what that means? Because God's love was uncaused and undeserved in the first place, there's nothing you could do to ever break off his love. You cannot lose your salvation any more than God can deny himself. His love is enduring for those who are in Christ, who have truly been born again. His love never wanes. It's new every morning. But the reality is, it never ended the night before. God's love, number five, is a measureless love. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. In verses 11 through 13, we, three, we see three consecutive similes to describe the love of God, but I want to focus on these in 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Saying as high 
as far. How much does God love you? Well, thankfully, he gives us the answer. As far as the heavens are above the earth. How high are the heavens above the earth? An infinite distance to describe an infinite love. Remember, the greater the lover, the greater the love. The lesser the object of the love, the greater the giver of it. And yet our great God and his unworthy creatures were not given pods. We're not given the leftovers of his love. We're not given the pods that go to the pigs or the crumbs that fall from the master's table. God pours out a immeasurable amount of love. And this is why we sing great hymns of the faith, right? Could we with ink the ocean fill or were the sky of parchment made were every stock on earth a quill or every man a, a scribe by trade, right? Meaning if the whole sky was a giant piece of paper and every ocean filled with ink and every single person in here a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole even if stretched from sky to sky, O oh love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it will forevermore endure the saints and angels song because this love is a measureless, boundless, unquantifiable love. God does not kind of love his children. He loves to love them. That's why David says in Psalm 18, the Lord delights in me. This is the type of love that feels seeker-sensitive. And yet, it's the revelation that God has given to us in his word. Number six, God's love is a fatherly love. Verse 13, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. God's love is a fatherly love. I've been to the Middle East a number of times and studied the Quran a little bit. Um, every single chapter in the Quran, except for one, begins with this line, Allah, comma, the merciful and compassionate. Muhammad got that straight out of the Bible. But the reality is, Allah that is presented in the Quran is not a merciful or compassionate God at all. He grades people on their performance. You understand that there are Close to 2 billion Muslims in the world, and their greatest prophet, Muhammad, had no assurance of salvation. He, he says, pray for me on his deathbed that Allah will accept me. Why? Because it's all based on human merit, not on grace. I remember when I was in Albania doing an English camp one time. They were predominantly Islamic students. They did English lessons in the morning. We would teach them at night, and I talked about the love of God and that he sent his one and only son and these students were initially hostile and resistant towards the truth of Christianity. They believe in Jesus, but they don't believe he is God. And I remember one kid coming up to me the morning after I talked. He grabbed me and he, by the literal collar, and he said, how come no one ever told me there was a God of love? Allah never loved me. His name was Dionys. I'll never forget it. Because what we've become so familiar to is so radically counter cultural to the majority of the religions in the world. Isaiah 49, verse 15, God says, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. 
We are not abandoned and unloved. We are adopted and cherished by our Father. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, at the moment you understand this, everything in your life changes. Martin Luther says, the word Abba is a little word, and yet it contains everything. Romans says, we are no longer slaves but sons, and we've received the spirit of adoption that cries out, Abba, Father. God's love for you is a fatherly love. He knows your frame, and yet he loves you. Look with me at the seventh feature. God's love is an everlasting love in verses 15 through 17. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. God's love is an everlasting love. In the parched Palestinian climate, the dew functions as a father for these tiny sprouts of grass that grow up in the morning, and by the evening, they've been scorched. They're dead and gone. And the Bible speaks to this reality in Ecclesiastes and James and Psalm 90 and here again. Your life is but a vapor. It's like grass. Spurgeon says, here is the history of grass. Sown, grown, blown, mown, gone. And so is our life. Grass withers, flowers fade. But God's love is from what? Everlasting to everlasting there are 26 verses in Psalm 136. Every single one of them ends with that reality, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The last psalm Jesus ever sings is Psalm 118, and the first four verses says that his loving kindness is everlasting. In Jeremiah 31, verse 34, God tells Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is crucial for you to understand. It's not just like an unnecessary you know, qualifier that God adds in. God's everlasting love reminds you of the fact that if he loved you before time began, then there is nothing you did to earn that love in the first place. God's love is uncaused and undeserved. And your love for God is not the cause of his love for you. His love for you is the cause of your love for him in return. Number eight, God's love is a demonstrated love. Look with me at verse 19, and we studied this last month. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. God is a sovereign God. He rules over all things, and in the sovereignty of God at the appointed time, at the perfect time, the sovereign king of the universe left his throne of glory to be born in a manger, he left his crown of glory for a crown of thorns. He left his robes of glory for rags that would be divided by the centurion slaughtering him. And he left his fiercely loyal seraphim warriors for the faithless and fickle crowd of those who would shout out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And the answer, it's really the answer to the question, why or how in verse 10? He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. How is that possible? How is it possible for God to not treat you according to your sins? We say God pardons our sins. I want you to understand biblically. I think you have a skewed understanding of what pardon means. God never looks at sin and goes, no big deal. Ah, it's fine. 
Every single sin will be punished by God. And punishment will be received either by the sinner or by an innocent substitute. And so the only reason he has not dealt with us according to our sins nor repaid us according to our iniquities is because on the cross of Jesus Christ, God treated Jesus as if he had lived all of your sin and just the full measure of all of your iniquity. He declared Jesus legally guilty of that sin and poured out the full measure of the wrath of God on his one and only son. The only reason we can say he has not dealt with us according to our sins is because God has treated his one and only son according to your sin. And on the cross, Jesus drank to the dregs the wrath of God. He bore it all. And so this love is not some, this this theory, this concept that Christians have come up with. It's an objective reality that was demonstrated when God preached the strongest sermon of all time in visible form when the God-man hung on the tree because in the sovereignty of God, he sent his one and only son to live the life you could never live so he could die the death you could never die so he could have a living resurrection so you might have a living hope even though you are plagued by sin. He can remove them as far as the east is from the west because our sovereign God demonstrated his love at Calvary. You no more create God's love by your faith, nor do your, your, your doubts destroy it. It's an objective, demonstrated fact. God loves you. Sometimes we're like, well, who does he love? He, does he love his children? Does he love the world? Well, there's, there's both ends, right? He, he loves his children specifically, and he loves the world. How do we know that? Because he causes the sun to rise on the unjust and the just. Every single person has the opportunity this morning out there to go and kiss the one they love. But you can only tell people that this love for, is for them if they come to the cross in repentance, And God is a patient God, and he gives people time to repent because he does not delight in the punishment of the wicked. Do you doubt the love of God? Then look to the cross. John Owen, the 17th century English theologian, says, the greatest sorrow and the greatest burden you can lay upon the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. You need to pray every single day, God, help me to believe you love me. And for me to have the right reasoning for why that's the case. R.C. Sproul once penned the line, why do bad things happen to good people? He says that only happened once and he volunteered because his love is a demonstrated love. Number nine, and we'll go quick. God's love is a transforming love. Look with me at verse 20. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, you perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Those who know their father's love do not kick against his will. The angels in heaven obey God, and so do his children here on earth who even remotely understand his love. We tell people, and rightfully so, to come as they are to Christ. But God's love will never leave them as they are. He loves them so much, his glory is manifested as he transforms them into the image of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. When we say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, 
There's truth in that to a degree. When we understand that the wonderful plan he has for our life is full of affliction, pain, sorrow, and trouble so that we might be weaned from the world and tethered to his one and only son. God's love is a transforming love. Can I draw an observation for you? Three qualifiers in verses 11, 13, and 17. So great is his loving kindness, verse 11, towards those who what? Fear him. Verse 13, so the Lord has compassion on those who what? Fear him. Verse 17, from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Verse 18, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. God's love is given in this way towards those who fear him, which means to be in awe of God. It means to worship God. It means to come to him in humility and submission. Do you know that the very last thing Jesus ever prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane is that you would begin to understand the love of God? He says, Father, I desire that the world would know that you have loved me or that you have loved them the way you have loved me. How much does God love his children? The amount that the Father loves Jesus Christ. Because the love that is given to you is a love in Christ. God does not love us because we are lovable. He loves us because he loves his one and only son. And you are a loved gift from the Father to the Son. And so when God looks at you, he does not see you by the qualities that you bring to him. Yes, he knows our frame and he is mindful that we are but dust. But his love is given to those who are, who are in Christ. And he loves you the way he loves his son. And then just finally, God's love is a glorious love. Number 10, verses 21 and 22. Really in 22. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. I mean, here's, here's how David concludes. Angels, heavenly hosts, the trees, everybody in here, bless God. If this is true, no more mumbo jumbo when we worship. No more mumbling. When you come in here, everybody, everybody with all of your soul, everything that's within you, bless his holy name because he is a God who loves you, forgives you, who's adopted you as his child, he loves you with an everlasting love, and this is glorious. No more of just the waltzing into worship. Every single person, psych each other up when you come into the house of God. When you're on your way to church in the morning, I want you to ask your sons, ask your daughters, are you ready to worship God? I don't know, Dad. I mean, do I have to go to my... You don't understand, son. His love is as high as the heavens are above the earth. He has removed my sin. My son, I have so much sin in my life and in my past. And you know where God has put them? In the deepest ocean. He's removed them as far as the east is from the west. So church is not a chore. Worship is not drudgery. It is the response of the heart that has been captivated by the love of God and can say with all honesty, this love is better than life. Do you want to have a great witness for God? And start telling people about that which satisfies your soul. Because if you've enjoyed the meal, 
you tell people? How do we respond to God's love? Well, in one way we do it by celebrating what we're going to do now, which is the Lord's table. As we celebrate communion, we're reminded each time that when we talk about God's love, it's an objective reality that fuels a subjective intimacy with God. So when we celebrate his death and his resurrection, we do so, watch this, not as a family tradition, but as a church ordinance, which means that this is something for believers. It's not something, I I mean, I know some of you guys want to do this with your kids in regards to the familial dynamic of it, but the Bible gives a woe to those who take this in an unworthy manner. I would never, I would just caution you to not include your kids in this if you do not know they've been born again. Because this is something for believers to celebrate what God has done, the cross, the resurrection, and watch this. How do I know God loves me if I'm going to add an 11th? Because he's coming back to gather his own where we will dwell with him for all of eternity. Can you say amen? Let me pray for us.